Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And people have long been fascinated by the sultans of the Ottoman Empire, by this enormous power they wielded across continents and across the centuries, by their extravagant wealth and elaborate building projects and by their fratricide. They're pretty well known for that. Yeah, this is one of those, what of the, what, which one of these things does not fit? <laughs> and of course, by their dramatic ascendancy and their equally dramatic decline. But come on, sultans of the Ottoman Empire are probably best known for their harems. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. We put it in the title. We thought that you might listen to it because it had harem in the title. Oh, we're so tricky. We know what you like. Um, so <laughs> people have this very romantic idea about what a harem is. It's mazes of concubines and slaves, and they're all guarded by eunuchs. So many women, so many kids. It seems just like the most mysterious, most... Eastern Ottoman thing the you can imagine. To fetishize part, yes. But if you romanticize harem life too much, it's easy to forget that harems were simply living quarters, schools, hospitals. They were filled not just with the sultan's concubines, but with his female relatives, his children, and they're all presided over by his own mother. It's a little city, and it's the sultan's entire domestic sphere. It's not just... Bath little room of people and, and sexy gauzy Yeah, fans. it's not just sexy room time. It's the Sultan's house. <laughs> That's my new favorite phrase for the day. <laughs> there could be hundreds or thousands of people in the harem, and some of them, unsurprisingly, had a lot of influence in affairs of state. The chief black or white eunuch, the fortunates who slept with the Sultan, the Valid Sultan, his mother, who was often just as important as the Grand Vizier and considerably more trustworthy. Yeah. But in the mid-16th century, the influence of the harem grew. A series of harem women, concubines, sisters, aunts, and mothers exerted a tremendous amount of influence on a series of sultans, leading some historians to call this 150-year stretch the reign of women. Yeah, and this is a very popular listener suggestion, along with harems and along with a lot of these specific women who reigned, quote, during this period. But today we're going to talk about the woman who's said to have started this whole era. She was a captured slave best known as Roxelana. Roxelana is the ultimate rags-to-riches story, and her Polish countrymen loved her for it. The Ottomans hated her for it, uh, but here are her beginnings, complete with their very obscure very origins. Obscure. <laughs> so the girl was possibly named Alexandra or Anastasia Lisowska, who was born around 1504 near Lvov in the western Ukraine, which was Poland at the time. She was possibly the daughter of an Orthodox priest and an unknown woman. And because the Tartars were pretty much constantly raiding Poland at this time. This little girl with her reddish blonde hair was snatched up and sold into slavery. Yeah, and somehow she made it all the way to Constantinople, where she ended up in the harem of the sultan, or possibly the soon-to-be sultan, Suleiman. She was about 15 years old, and 
We should talk a little bit about Suleiman. He he's magnificent. He is. Oh, that's his his nickname, Suleiman the Magnificent. He came to power in 1520, and he's known for greatly expanding the Ottoman Empire. He nearly captured Vienna, so that gives you a pretty good idea of how far this guy's power stretched. And he's an interesting guy too. He's intelligent. He's kind. He seems very gentle. Yet he also has a brutal reputation as well. He loved poetry. His pen name was Muhibi. Uh, he put through a lot of legal reforms. He tried to simplify the law. He tried to end discrimination against Christian subjects and lightened up sentences on criminals. But he also had plenty of prisoners executed and killed lots of family members, lots even for a sultan's standards, which, which are very, may not be the same as yours very and low. mine. Yeah. And he started the tradition of saying nothing when foreign ambassadors presented themselves, which, oh boy, I don't think I could be a foreign <laughs> ambassador. That would be... Hard to deal with, I'd I say. I can see Jack Donaghy. Yeah. I'm going to pull that. <laughs> the modern sultan. So um, here's what the Venetian envoy says of Suleiman. He's, quote, by nature melancholy, much addicted to women, liberal, proud, hasty, and yet sometimes very gentle. So going into this podcast with that description of the man. If you're going to give him a present, what might you bring him? Perhaps our sweet red-headed Roxolana, she might make a lovely gift, and she did indeed. And even though she would have entered the harem in its lowest ranks, there was a really strict hierarchy yeah, the, in the harem, if you want to talk a little more about that. Yeah, it, as we mentioned earlier, the sultan's mother would be the reigning woman of the harem. And then uh, she'd be followed by the mother of his eldest son, and she would be followed by his other sexual partners followed by women who he may <laughs> later choose as sexual partners. Who might partners. make a list. Yeah. And then just other ladies, too. So she would have come into this whole scheme in the very bottom. But she may have become a favorite of the sultan's mother for her intelligence and her humor. So she managed to rise in the ranks a little bit more quickly than some. And she would have lived in a dorm of sorts and learned Persian, Arabic, Turkish, Poetry, calligraphy, sewing, dancing, singing, music, storytelling. It's not, again, just sitting around and waiting to enjoy the sultan's favor. They yeah. were doing things with their free time. And uh, they were chosen a lot of times for their intelligence and for their charm. Yeah, your ability to make conversation and, you know, be amusing. Exactly. And actually, according to Venetian reports, Roxolana isn't even particularly beautiful. She's elegant. But she's smart and she's fun and she's nice to talk to. She must also have caught the sultan's eye pretty quickly because by 1521, she had her first son by him, Mehmed. And she also had a new name of her own, Huram, or Joyful One. Which she took upon converting to Islam. And it sounds like a happy family. She has this name meaning Joyful One. She has her son by the sultan. Um, maybe sort of distancing herself from that obviously traumatic capture and time in slavery. It's not really the most happy family. No, don't be fooled. So we're going to digress for a minute and talk about Ottoman fratricide, which we mentioned in the beginning. It's an unfortunate consequence of harem life, and it's the reverse problem of a lot of the European dynasties where they don't have an heir, they're too inbred. Um here we have far too Way many. Way too many sons. And so when a lot of sultans came to power, the first thing they did was have all of their half-brothers and nephews strangled. You didn't want to spill the 
the royal blood. So you'd have them strangled by like a silk cord or something. Um, An elegant way of strangling. elegant, but you're still being strangled, which is probably not a very elegant death. Uh, They did this because they didn't want competing claims to the throne. We know what happens when you have a lot of men who are all trying to claim their stake. You end up with war. This was a way to try to avoid that. Harem women weren't even allowed to have two sons by the sultan. So the idea was one concubine mother, one son, and then you better hope you had some girls. Uh, So consequently, harem mothers were very invested in their sons. And case in point, Mehmed is not Suleiman's oldest son. A kid named Mustafa is. And Sarah and I are holding back every urge to go all Lion King and say Mustafa through the rest of this podcast. That'll be the only time. That's the only time. And I got to do it. Sorry, Sarah. And his mother, the former favorite Gula Bahar, is not pleased with this upstart, Roxalana. So she attacks Roxalana. She scratches her face and, you know, attempts to scar and disfigure her. And she calls her sold meat. And so when Suleiman summons Roxalana, she refuses him, which is a very bold thing to do. Uh, She could have been cast aside or punished for it. But she says that she's too disfigured to appear before him. And she she pulls off that quote again. She's yes, sold she's meat. She's sold meat. She can't come. Um, he makes her come anyway. And then he asks Gulabahar if it's true that she attacked Roxolana. And she says, yes, it is true. And she deserved it. It backfires big time on Gulabahar because it's not long before Mustafa is sent off to act as a governor in a faraway province and following the tradition of accompanying your son, Gulabahar is packing her bags to follow him. So she's not in the capital anymore. She's not with the sultan. She's away from where everything is going down. And Roxalana becomes the apple of the sultan's eye. They have a daughter together, Mirima, who he adores, and three more sons, Salim, Bayazit, and Jehangir, who has a hunchback. So this big family's a big deal. He's letting her break that one mother, one son rule, which people don't like. That's a little scary as far as the power balance goes. Definitely. People really don't like it. She's getting uh, way too much power, it seems, and has way too big of a hold over the sultan. But then things get even more outrageous because Suleiman becomes nearly monogamous, <gasps> which is outrageous. Horrors. Say it ain't so. <laughs> he starts marrying off his slaves, marrying off his concubines, which is something you could... I, I didn't always realize that that was the case, that the harem life, if you didn't have a son by the sultan, you could make a pretty good marriage deal after Around 1530, Suleiman marries Roxalana, and Sir George Young of England reported that there was a grand celebration, houses strung with garlands, there were tournaments, there were feasts, giraffes on parade. No Ottoman sultan had been married for more than two centuries. The rest preferred to keep slaves and concubines. So you can imagine how big of an affair this was. Yeah, you you have to imagine, too, it's probably a begrudging celebration on some people's (laughs) part. But it's clear how much Suleiman is in love with his wife. In one poem, he describes Roxalana as my sheer delight, my revelry, my feast, my torch, my sunshine, my sun in heaven, my orange, my pomegranate, the flaming candle that lights up my pavilion. Oh, 
When's the last time you got compared to a citrus fruit? Or a pomegranate. I I mean, that's probably the best part. But Roxolana wasn't just a lovely pomegranate to Suleiman. (laughs) So much more. (laughs) She became his most trusted advisor, and after his mother died in 1534, the top woman in the empire. And she works really hard to master her Turkish so that she can communicate with the Sultan while he's away on his campaign. You know, she, she works to make herself extremely valuable and stay in the loop. They write these love letters to each other while he's away and they're filled with lots of tender sentiments, but also a lot of news about what's going on. She's clearly his eyes in the capital. Well, she keeps spies to inform her about what's going on, about any plots against the sultan, and to just keep her in the loop about foreign affairs as well. Yeah, so she can be the one who delivers the news. There's this coup against you. And she carefully guards who her husband gets close to, because, of course, those are possible rivals. She exposes the forgery of the sultan's best friend and grand vizier Ibrahim, and the sultan has him executed. And she also acts as a chief diplomatic liaison to Europe. She's believed to be at least partly responsible for the empire's relations with Poland, which, for a time, turned friendly. There were truces in 1525 and 1528, and eternal peace treaties in 1533 and You'd have two of them. (laughs) If they're so eternal, yeah, you probably don't. She corresponded with the Polish kings. And it's possible that she had some interest in slowing the slave trade in her country, although we can't say say that for sure. Yeah, according to um, Muslim World, between the 15th century and the first half of the 17th century, 2.5 million Ukrainians were kidnapped and sold into slavery. Um, And the Tartars apparently treated their captives very poorly. Which I feel like that's something we should emphasize, too. This slave trade in the Ottoman Empire is huge. So it's not a it's not a nice side of things. Well, and most of them are not the so little girls snatched up and sold into the harem stories. I mean, make it sound that way just for the story's sake. But that's not quite how it worked out. So, yeah, she clearly would have had an interest in at least stopping that in her own homeland. She even relocates. Uh, when fire destroys the harem in the old palace, Roxolana moves into the sultan's house, Topkapi, right behind the throne room. And when he wants to build her a new palace, sort she... Return to the old way. Yeah, uh, you know, she deflects him. Let's. I'll, I'll just stay here. Why don't we build a mosque instead? So she is literally at the center of power now. <laughs> She's played her cards well. Um, unsurprisingly, a lot of Ottomans are suspicious and jealous of Roxolana and this enormous control she exerts over the Sultan. And especially so when her sons begin to come of age and they're sent off to govern provinces as they traditionally do. And she doesn't go with one of them. So normally, as we mentioned um, earlier with Mustafa, yeah, yeah, um, mothers would accompany their sons and they would only return to the capital if their son became sultan and they were returning in the capacity of mother of the sultan. And this was just sort of a old and convenient way to separate power between women. So you have the sultan's sexual favorite back in the capital and then you had the mother of his heir and she's off somewhere else. But as the sultan's wife, Roxolana stays, living with Suleiman and their son Jihangir in Topkapi. And she wants to stay close to the sultan for a reason. Very important reason. Yeah. Roxolana knew that whatever her place was with Suleiman, if his eldest son was allowed to succeed, her sons would be killed. And Mustafa wasn't only just the eldest son. He was 
he was a proper sultan. He was handsome. He was popular with the army. He was popular with the people. You know, it seemed like something that would stick. He seemed like a sure bet. He did. It seemed like he would definitely be sultan, making her son's uh, tough luck for them. So she sticks by Suleiman in the capital, and she makes sure that he hears about every single plot in every possible coup. And she also has an ally in the Grand Vizier, who happens to conveniently be her daughter's husband, which was also a breach of tradition. The Sultan wasn't supposed to have a Grand Vizier who was related to him. It's obviously a conflict of interest. Uh, So eventually, with these two sort of planning ideas, and of course their daughter and uh, other allies, eventually the Sultan starts to worry about his son Mustafa's intentions, sort of hint, hint, what is this guy up to out in the provinces? And eventually he has his own son assassinated. So Mustafa is out of the way. People were very, very unhappy about this assassination. They accused Roxalana of being a witch and saying she charmed the Sultan with potions. Uh, but Salim is the heir now, so she's pretty happy. Yeah. Uh, Roxalana died in 1558, and Suleiman buried her in his new mosque and ordered another built in her name, plus a school and a hospital. And his final years were appropriately dramatic. Sons Salim and Bayazit fought over succession. The Sultan had Bayazid killed for uh, his intrigues with the Shah of Persia. He should have learned from his elder half-brother. He should have, but he didn't. His daughter, Mirima, replaced her mother as Suleiman's most trusted advisor, a position she kept when her brother Salim became Sultan. He's sometimes known as Salim the Sot because of his fondness for drink. Well, and that's another important note to make. Sultans were so concerned about what their sons had going on, you know, if they were seriously planning a coup or some sort of plot, um, that they would try to give them as much alcohol as possible, as many drugs as possible, as many women as possible, and just sort of turn them into guys who aren't particularly threatening. Of course, that doesn't always breed the best ruler. And so we end up with this period in history where the women of the harem end up exerting more control than they normally would have. Marima was instrumental in the decision to seize Malta and she was influential through many reigns. Her nephew, Murad III, had her buried with Suleiman, and she was followed by other powerful harem women like Sa, Norbanu, Safiye, Kosim. Um, but before we leave Roxalana completely behind, we'd like to talk a little bit about her reputation through the centuries. Yeah, and I found it kind of strange to research and to talk about someone who is so clearly so influential in her immediate history and after all over Europe and Asia. Um, but she left behind so little information because after all, she lived in a harem. The whole point of a harem is to keep it private and separate from public life. And reports of harem life are famously skewed. Ambassadors didn't always know what they were reporting and sort of would spin things however they saw fit. So what we do have is her correspondence with Suleiman, salary records, Suleiman's diaries and love letters, and Roxalana's letters to Sigismund II. 
and they paint a picture of a couple very much invested in each other and a capable, ruthless consort to match a capable, ruthless ruler, as Sarah put it to me earlier. Yeah, but a lot of these documents weren't known until the 19th or 20th century. And by that point, Roxolana had already gotten herself quite a reputation as this manipulator, maybe a witch, you never know. Um, English historian Richard Nollies called her the greatest empress of the East, which sounds like a compliment, but he also portrayed her as this really wicked woman who controlled the good sultan entirely. Um, Eastern European histories go a little more towards the Cinderella route because, after all, this is their um, this is their countrywoman. She's a slave who rises to great power. But I mean, I I think that you can have a little bit of both. I mean, it seems like she did exert quite amount of good, uh, but you'd have to be ruthless. She was working within the harem structure, which is bait based around ruthlessness, essentially. Well, and for her survival, for her family's survival, she was, of course, a, a slave to begin with, and she died the wife of a sultan, the first sultan's wife in 200 years. So we say well played, Roxolana. I think so. And if you have a different opinion, feel free to email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We also have a Facebook fan page and a Twitter feed, Missed in History. And if you'd like to look for some more great history articles, check out our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 